people say you and I look alike. And so it's kind of quite wonderful to be here on this podcast. I, I don't see any, any resemblance. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I... <laughs> I'm highly uh, offended. But... <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, going back to your question. Um, I can't even remember what your question was. What was your question? <laughs> uh, the question? Welcome to the 45th episode of Tokyo Alumni Podcast. Today, our guest is a co-founder of MyMizu, an award-winning initiative to reduce consumption of single-use plastics. He is also the co-founder and director of Social Innovation Japan, a platform for social good focusing on the UN Sustainable Development Goals and is a former consultant at the World Bank. He has 10 years experience working with intergovernmental organizations, social enterprises, and NGOs, and has managed humanitarian operations in countries such as Haiti, Nepal, Bonatsu, and Mozambique. In 2017, he took on a sponsored expedition walking 600 plus kilometers along Japan's disaster-affected coastline to document the recovery from the 2011 Fukushima nuclear crisis. He is a board member of the Shibuya QWS Innovation Council and graduated with an MA in International Business from the University of Edinburgh. Welcome to the podcast, Robin. Thanks so much for having me, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, today we'll talk a bit about Maimizu, your trip walking 600 plus kilometers um, along the coastlines of Japan and your various adventures around the world. Um, I'm not sure if we'll be able to cover all of them, but maybe we can talk about at least a few of your expeditions and um, whatever else comes up. So um, let's start off with what you're, uh, what you're doing right now, My Mizu. Can you tell us a bit about the origin story of how you guys started this NGO, I guess would be the official designation of your group. Yeah, well, first of all, I want to say thank you so much for repping my Mizu. Uh, for those of you who can see, uh, Nick has a beautiful my Mizu bottle in the background there. So thank you for that. Um, my Mizu, what we do is we're on a mission to tackle the single-use uh, plastic issue. So as you know, you've probably seen lots and lots of uh, news articles and so on, and you've probably seen a lot of waste out there uh, on the oceans and the rivers and, and, and the natural environment. Um, and this amount of plastic that we're consuming is currently uh, really quite significant. Uh, so what we're doing is we're providing uh, a way for people to shift away from single-use plastic to more sustainable alternatives. Um, what we do is we provide a free smartphone app that connects people to places where they can refill their bottle instead of buying plastic bottles. And currently, uh, we have about 200,000 uh, locations around the world. Uh, where people can refill their water bottle. Um, and we've built lots of partnerships with local governments, with uh, companies, with schools, universities. And we're really trying to leverage both technology and community to uh, tackle this issue of single-use plastics. Interesting. So when it comes to water use, um, it, it's kind of unique in Japan in the sense that tap water is you know, consumable, unlike you know, places like Vietnam, Thailand. So with your sort of initiative in regards to the, you know, free refills, do you find certain locations and demographics are much more sort of susceptible to this model of free refills? And if so, like what areas have really uh, began to sort of um, absorb this business model of, you know, Maimizu? To be honest, our main focus right now is Japan. Uh, we do have people using our service across uh, some 40 countries. 
Uh, but the reason we're focusing on Japan is because, A, we're based here. I'm currently based uh, near Tokyo. Um, but the issue of single-use plastic consumption is not really on the radar, especially compared to, let's say, in parts of Europe or even in the U.S. Um, so we're kind of trying to bring that whole conversation to a new level. Um, simultaneously, Japan is this, the world's second largest consumer of plastic packaging per capita. So we're kind of on the front lines here in terms of plastic consumption, as you've seen on the streets of Tokyo and so on. Um, so right now, to, to kind of get back to your question, we're really focusing on Japan. Um, in terms of demographic, most of our community and our, our users and so on tend to be people in their 20s, uh, 30s. Uh, we really have an entire, quite a big range of people using the service right now. And that's really interesting that you mentioned Japan is the second highest per capita with plastic use. Yeah. What do you yeah. think sort of has pushed Japan to become such a plastic-heavy nation when it comes to consumption? You know, I, I think traditionally Japan is actually an a very environmentally uh, sustainable country. If you look at history, if you look at how people live uh, in harmony with, with nature uh, throughout the Edo period, even, you know, leading up to the, the Second World War period and so on. I, I think where things began to shift, as with many other countries, uh, was with that post-war economic growth, right? We had this rapid growth. Um, and we had a lot of consumerism. Right? That was really when, when things started to kick off. Um, and the whole, there was a famous saying, I think it's shōhiwa bitoku. It's like the consumption as a virtue was kind of a, a, a significant uh, way of thinking after in that period of time. And so I think plastic really kind of hit, um, you know, hit the mainstream during that period. And while some other countries have started to recognize the, the negative impacts of, of plastic, uh, and are increasingly introducing regulations and so on. Uh, Japan is somewhat um, still behind, um, mm. but there's a lot, also a lot of action. So we're st st seeing a lot of shifts within both the private sector, public sector, and so on, um, but we still have a long way to go. Interesting. And when it comes to just everyday sort of, uh, you know, reduction of plastic use, or just really yeah. any kind of reduction of, of wasteful, I don't know, I think plastic bags, I guess that's plastic. Um, I'm curious, what is your pitch you give towards, especially young people in regards to mm. sort of what they can do? Because I think a lot of the time, you know, as you know, in places like Japan and the US, people are so, I guess, just busy, right? People have their, you know, they yeah. got their college exams or whatever. So especially for young people, what's, what's your pitch in regards to what they can do like right away, starting tomorrow? What I would say with that is that, I mean, I understand, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly a, an angel in terms of, of my consumption habits. And I, I definitely use some plastic and I, and I, I am not, I can never claim to be 100% like a purist in that sense. What I would say is that I, I actually think that young people are very much taking the lead on this. If you look at the level of activism, the level of activity within uh, let's say Gen Z and the millennial generation, there is a lot of noise and a lot of action. So um, I actually think there isn't that much convincing to do um, to those people, but it's the question is how, how do we reach the 80% the of people who don't necessarily care? Mm -hmm. And that's where we're trying to really come in. So rather than taking the environmental, um, <laughs> what's the word approach, uh, we tend to go more with like the lifestyle approach. So, for example, a simple thing like carrying your reusable bottle 
um, if we can make it a positive fashion statement, if we can make it something that uh, people don't do because it's environmentally friendly, but because it's cheaper, it's more convenient, it's whatever it is, having other uh, value mm. is really, I think, how we shift the needle and how we shift the, move the, the conversation forward uh, on this. So that's why we do a lot of events. We do a lot of um, online communications. We do digital storytelling to really get the story out there in, in a more positive way rather than seeing it as a negative, you know, oh, we have to save the oceans and we have to sacrifice our lives or our lifestyles. Why don't we shift the conversation to, hey, look, guys, we can create this fantastic society. We can make a new value with the way that we live and we can and live uh, in a, an environmentally friendly way as well. So we're trying to kind of stay away from the negative messaging and kind of more cool with our, with our digital content, with our storytelling and so on. Yeah, that's, that's a great point that... Um it's not, it's hard to convince people. Right. And as you said earlier, I guess the young yeah. people are the ones that I guess you're saying don't need the convincing, but with the yeah. older people, then um, there's kind of been the economic approach or I guess, how do you sort of try to make the economic argument of the mm. buying the reusable bottles? So I think that we're seeing a fundamental shift in society um i i think businesses let's take the business sector f pr first right businesses are shifting not necessarily just because of consumer demand yes there are some you know increasing voices and and uh, concerns among consumers about plastic packaging and, and negative environmental impact but i think where we see a lot of promise is that now investors are saying hey unless you guys get your uh, what they call esg environment society governance uh, mm. factors you know aligned then we're not going to invest in you and then the employees are increasingly saying hey look unless you have make a positive impact on society i'm not going to work for you so yes consumers are changing the story but on top of that we have um investors we have employees we have lots of different stakeholders now uh, all shifting in the same direction away from carbon intensive and environmentally uh damaging activity so I think, uh, yes, consumers are important, but we're seeing so many different factors in play, um, including also government regulation. There is more regulation clamping down on this. Uh, so hopefully this will be like the, the, uh, the momentum change that we need to really to get this off the ground. Interesting. And it's, you know, a lot of the work you do is obviously, it's not about you. You're always sort of working for other people and trying to make the world a better place. But I want to focus now on you. You know, Robin Lewis, okay. man. And, um, I, I should say, I should say that I, I think, you know, I'm kind of lucky that I do what I really enjoy doing. And it just so happens to be environmental work or whatever it is. So I, I never really approach my work like I'm, I'm sacrificing myself for this cause. I just genuinely enjoy doing certain things and mm -hmm. happen to align with, I guess, broadly defined social impact. Just but anyway. <laughs> Sorry for interrupting that. <laughs> well, it's, um, it's a good point. Um, I don't know. I still see it very much as a sacrifice you're making for other people. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, when we look at you as a person, you came to Japan at age 15, right? So in that sense, 14. <laughs> and in that sense, you know, you weren't really, quote unquote, raised in Japan, right? You spent three, four years of high school. And then, and then you left uh, to the UK. And then you decided to return, though. And I wanted to ask you, you know, why, why come back to Japan, basically? What, what, was the, what 
was the attractiveness of going back to Tokyo? And was there any point when you graduated from Edinburgh that you were just like, all right, you know, you, you spent most of your life until then in the UK. You know, why, yeah. what, what pushed you towards heading back to Tokyo? So I should say, I, I was actually born here in Tokyo, but then I left pretty soon after. I think I was two or three years old when I left. So I don't really have any kind of super early memories of, of Japan. Um, I did come back for a short stint uh, when I was, I think, 10 or 11. My memory is getting terrible. I, I forget all the details, but I was back once when I was um, around 10 years old uh, as well. Uh, but kind of going back to the question, what really brought me back to Japan? Um, <laughs> I'll give you the super short version of this story, but I was studying uh, business at university at, in Scotland. Um, and I just remember, I always say that studying business made me very skeptical of modern day business because all of the conversation was about profit uh, maximization, about how to maximize a shareholder value, right? And there was no conversation around how does business uh, affect society in a positive way. Um, and so that kind of, that really kind of disheartened me. I thought, well, if, if the corporate sector is just about, you know, making a, loads of money, what's like, what's the point? Like, what are we making money for? Right. And so uh, I was kind of having this career crisis just as I was graduating and all of my friends were heading to like top, you know, business firms and whatnot. Um, and then one day the, uh, 2011 tsunami happened and that was right before I was going to graduate so I still remember you know I was in bed and my phone was ringing and I picked up and it was my mum and she said hey there's Robin there's been a big earthquake so I remember switching on the tv and seeing this, this horrific uh, scene you know unfolding so actually what brought me back to Japan initially was was the tsunami and that turned out to be a very big uh, moment in terms of my career and my journey as well so when you say the tsunami brought you back, um, can you can you elaborate yeah. on that point? What would you mean? Like you wanted to join like a like rescue missions or what? What exactly about the tsunami brought you back? Sure. My, well, my mum's family originally is from Sendai, from Miyagi, which was uh, devastated by the tsunami. So there was a some kind of ancestral connection. Um, and when I saw that, I just had a I had a strong urge to do something. Right. I mean, I was a student. Come from, from, uh, coming from a privileged uh, background, you know, when somewhere where I consider my home is in need, then surely I should do something. So I, I had quite a strong um, urge to do something and that, that's what brought me back. Uh, what happened then was <laughs> kind, of, kind of crazy when I think about it. I ended up essentially just volunteering. I, I didn't have any skills. I didn't have any, you know, any experience with any of this stuff. Um, but I ended up volunteering in Fukushima and Miyagi and Iwate, uh, where I was helping out in the emergency centers and um, coordinating international teams as, as a volunteer. And it was a really kind of meaningful experience. I thought, you know, this is the kind of work that I would love to do. You can see the impact, you meet amazing people. And yes, it's very difficult times, but you can see a very clear um, impact of your work. So um, that's when I thought, cool, you know, imagine if I could do this for a job. Um, and eventually, uh, it did become my job. Wow. So it's just all these events connected to one another. Uh, the earthquake happening right as you graduated. Yeah. It's kind, of it's, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. Yeah. I've now been working for 10 years and everything has just been complete, um, I guess, spontaneity, timing, 
uh, that's led me here so far. And then you, you stay in Japan and there's a major sponsored expedition you go on in 2013, right? <laughs> it's roughly what, two years after? No, that was actually, that was 2016. So that was a fair bit after, about five, five years after. Sorry, my, my notes are wrong. I, I think you gave me those notes though. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. You, you just weren't listening to my call, man. <laughs> That's all you. So, so 2016, you, you go on this expedition, right? 600 plus yeah. kilometers. Can you tell us a yeah. bit about how that transpired in the first place? And, you know, since then, my understanding is it's sort of become like a tourist, you know, like a, a tourist thing, basically. It wasn't a thing. And now it is a thing. So can you sort of explain how, how it came to fruition? Okay, so just to fill in the gap a bit, between 2011 and 2016, um, I was working in the humanitarian space. So I ended up getting a job uh, for, uh, with an NGO where I was uh, in charge of humanitarian uh, projects. So essentially, I would go into areas that were affected by mainly natural disasters like typhoons and floods and this kind of thing. Uh, and basically work with local government, work with um, UN organizations to essentially provide humanitarian assistance. Um, so that was kind of that bulk of that five years. But Tohoku, as I mentioned before, the earthquake in 2011 was a really uh, significant part of the story. So I was always drawn back and I wanted to go back and, and kind of understand what had happened uh, in those five years since the tsunami. So I decided to do this walk because the government had just opened this new trail along the coastline that had been devastated by the tsunami. And when I read about this, I was like, okay, I love doing like outdoorsy kind of adventure stuff. And there is, it's in the area that's affected by the tsunami. So I thought two things that are super connected to me, um, let's do this. And so I, yeah, I got some sponsorship and some uh, grants and things. And I, and I did this kind of mini adventure down the coastline. And the whole point of this was to essentially tell the stories of people who had been affected by the tsunami, how they're rebuilding their lives. Um, and also to promote the area as a tourist destination because tourism is such a powerful way to help uh, communities recover from, from disaster. All right. So... Enough about Robin Lewis, the human. And I want to get back to sort of Robin Lewis, the, you know, worldwide globetrotter, rescue, whatever you do. Um, you know, all these places, right? Mozambique, Vanuatu, Vanuatu. Vanuatu. And um, with those various, you know, these various places you've been to in regards to, uh, you know, responding to crisis, which one has been the most challenging and you know why was that the most challenging place to go well that's a great question i don't think anyone's asked me that before um honestly i mean these are all emergency kind of humanitarian projects and and uh, i should clarify that they're, they're relatively short term you know uh, up to a few months it's not like i was living there for, for a long period of time um but it's always complicated i mean if i if i had to pick one I was actually in, in Nepal um, during the, there were two major earthquakes in 2015. Uh, I was in Kathmandu, the capital, during the massive aftershock. And I think that was about uh, magnitude seven or something. And I remember being terrified because I was in, in uh, Kathmandu, which is, has lots of like tall, 
kind of you know old looking buildings and i remember people were like kind of panicking running around and and i thought okay you know if this if this falls on me this this is the end um that was a pretty challenging situation um but honestly yeah all of them have been challenging in different ways and when it comes to you know you mentioned earlier sort of the connection of business i think a mm-hmm. common question people would have especially you know in your area of just basic environmentalism. I know we had we had a guest um, a few seasons ago, um, Ian. Who I believe you guys are been acquainted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Graduate of St. Mary's is, mm. um, you know, I know sometimes that people don't want to talk about money, but you know, I think it's a conversation worth having. Is how mm. do you know if someone is aspiring to work, you know, in that sector of conservationism, environmentalism? Basically, how do you how do you put food on your plate? You know, how can one pursue that cause yet, uh, you know, create a living for themselves? That's a great point. So, what I would say there is that when I was young, I, I say that like I'm not old man. When I was younger <laughs> at university, there were two parts, right? Either one, you do good for the world, you go work for an NGO, maybe the UN, maybe government. Uh, or you go and make money, right? You go work for Mitsubishi, you go do whatever, you know, Goldman Sachs, McKinsey, whatever. But what is emerging and what has been emerging for the past 10 years, or longer in fact, is this middle route where you can make money, you can have profit, and you can also solve serious social and environmental problems. So mm-hmm. as my music right now, uh, we consider ourselves more of a social business as opposed to an NGO. What that means is we pursue both profit and purpose, right? As you say, unless we have money, we can't pay our salaries, we can't pay the rent, and then we shut down. So we find uh, ways to make money. We have our business models to essentially keep, um, ensure that we can continue doing the work that we're doing and hopefully scale up as well. Um, so we do have a team of full-time staff, part-time staff, and so on. Uh, and in that sense, you know, I strongly believe that through the power of business, you can solve social problems and uh, do good things, whether it's environmentalism or human rights or whatever as well. I recall, um, I think it's Tom's Shoes. Is that the one where, you know, you yeah, buy yeah, shoes, uh, they give one it. away. And obviously you're yeah. in this, you know, you have much more know-how in, in that area. What are a few companies that you would look at as sort of being in the forefront right now in regards to making that money, right? Obviously Tom's is just, seems like every other person I know has one, yet contributing greatly in regards to, you know, social responsibility. That's a good question. I mean, there are a lot of startups and kind of small ventures working my, on. Minus my music. Okay. I would, I would highly <laughs> recommend my music. <laughs> no, no, no. There, there's a whole bunch of, of, of really solid examples of this uh, in the business world. Um, what's really interesting is there are now big brands, like major companies who are aligning all of their activities with social and environmental issues. So you may have heard of what's called a B Corp, which is a essentially a company that is legally or that there is a very stringent uh, checklist to ensure that um, the company is doing really good things with their supply chain, with their carbon emissions and so on. There are some big companies who are currently becoming B Corp voluntarily because they understand that the consumer wants responsible items and responsible products. Um, So just to name a few examples, I I believe, I mean, companies in like Unilever and and, uh, Procter & Gamble, you know, they definitely had, I'm sure, a lot of uh, negative <laughs> impacts traditionally, but 
in recent years they've really been taking the lead in terms of um, sustainable development and so on. Um, in terms of other, you know, one company, one startup that I like is called uh, Indosol. Mm. And I'm just saying this because I have these flip-flops uh, <laughs> very <laughs> close to me. But basically, they're flip-flops made of tires that have been disposed of in Bali. And they hire um, local artisans to essentially make flip-flops from these waste tires and so on. So that's an example of, of just one kind of social business that... Um, solves or tackles a social and environmental problem while also making profit. Amazing. Um, Indosol. 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 It's a good, Indosol. good company. And yeah, yeah. I like put a little link in the... <laughs> in yeah, the, man, that's cool. That, that's intriguing. And, you know, it's uh, Tokyo Alumni Podcast, so we were actually yeah. in high school at the same time, um, class of uh, 2006 and 2005. W what, were there any, you know, parts throughout your academic slash professional journey that can be traced back to ASIJ? Uh, yeah. Sorry, just as you were saying that, I had a, a flashback. I think <laughs> on my second day at ASIJ, I dropped my student card. And no, 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 hang on. No, no, no. Let, me, let, me, let me start again. No. Someone came up to me, and I vividly remember this, in the library, right? And they said, hey, hey, dude, uh, I don't know who you are, but I think you've dropped your student card. And they gave me the card and it was you. <laughs> so apparently someone, people kept thinking they were alike. And I've had so many variations of this episode where people say you and I look alike. And so it's kind of quite wonderful to be here on this podcast. I, I don't see any, any resemblance. <laughs> um, yeah. I... <laughs> I'm highly uh, offended. But <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, going back to your question. Um, I can't even remember what your question was. What was your question? <laughs> uh, the question was, so throughout your, you know, academic slash professional, you know, career, um, yeah. are there any, any major points that you feel like trace back to your, your three years at ASIJ? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, I was there for two years. I think if you uh, if you'd been uh, listening to my <laughs> my previous, Sorry. I was there for two years, junior and senior. Was that it? Um, oh. Maybe it, it, my, it felt longer. It felt longer. It felt longer. Yeah, it was torture. <laughs> it was torture for you, clearly. Um, but essentially, yeah, in terms of what I brought away from AFIJ, I think there are so many things, and I guess you you know, with, it's like with so many things where you only really realize once you. Uh, get to not a certain age, but once you have some time away from ASIJ, um, I did meet a lot of really, uh, really lovely people who I'm still in touch with uh, to this day. Um, I think the school did instill a sense of uh, a sense of kind of global citizenship or responsibility upon me as well. Um, even though I wasn't very active, you know, kind of ironically, I never really did anything very uh, responsible or very, you know. Um, philanthropic or anything at ASIJ. <laughs> I was too busy doing sports and other stuff. Um, but no, I'd say, yeah, just that sense of, of global citizenship, if that's the term, and also just having that broader perspective that we're super fortunate to have at, at ASIJ. Interesting. So yeah. you, you mentioned uh, that you weren't part of any of those, you know, I think it was a Habitat for Humanity and all those. Yeah. I think I applied, but I think I got rejected. The same thing at university. <laughs> I, I applied to something. People just kept rejecting me. So, you know, I thought, well, okay, I've got to do this with my career now just to, just to prove I can, I can make it. 
yeah, you just have to walk 600 kilometers and <laughs> you're going to take you seriously. Huh? <laughs> but, oh, that's intriguing. Yeah, that's, that's good to hear, though, that the whole global mindset. I mean, it, it's very easy. I, I think there's literally thousands of schools that, you know, promulgate this. Yeah. They have this, you know, big idea of making global citizens, but so much of it's on websites. And, you know, that's it. Yeah, yeah. That's where it stops. You know, it's where it starts and ends. But it seems like, you know, for the most part, ASIJ does a pretty decent job at instilling that you know, sense of global responsibility. Just seeing, you know, these various guests on. Um, yeah. So, yeah, not just ASIJ, but, you know, St. Mary's and St. Moore. And but what's shows. been cool is that I've been I've gone back to ASIJ recently since starting my museum. Um, and I actually have some of the students helping us out and stuff. So there's clearly a lot of uh, not just interest from the school, but also a lot of the students who want to do something uh, positive mm -hmm. for society and the environment. So it's kind of, it's a really promising sign to see that ASIJ is doing a lot of this stuff uh, strategically now as well. That, that's really good to hear. Cause I felt like that was mm -hmm. one thing that was lacking when I was there as a student was, and even when I graduated was you see schools like St. Mary's and they have very much a system of like mentorship and people, you know, mm. get, getting internships etc whereas at aside yeah. it seems like that's always been lacking which is why actually i think they recently have a full-time position now like alumni associations or alumni uh, yeah 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 uh, relationships so you know it's good to yeah. see that they're starting to catch up you know to these other uh international schools that seem to already have the pipelines you know set up mm. um but can yeah. i ask you the same question yeah <laughs> am i allowed to ask you questions Definitely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what What did you take away most from ASIJ that's uh, contributed to your career? Um, wow, the tables have turned. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's so hard, right? Answering questions is much harder. Um, I asked you a question on your podcast like this. I I think I think there's been there's been a few. Depend depends okay. on the guest. There's some guests that you know ask two three questions, but most most not really. Yeah, so that's a that's a really interesting question. Um, I want to say, I mean, for me, you know, international education is everything, right? I've been in the international school system since age three until eighteen, and then apart from four years of college and a year of working, I went right back into the system. So, um, you know, I think it, it's everything in both good and the bad. I feel like because I've been part of the system for so long, even though I'm only 34, you know, so minus four years of college and a year of working, I've been 29 years, either a student or a teacher, right, in, in the system. So I feel like I, I see the positives, as you mentioned, like global mindset. I, I, there's a lot of good that comes out of international schools. But I also feel like I'm kind of on a crusade, or at least I feel like I'm on a crusade constantly trying to make international schools better. I feel like oh. I see the blind spots, right? I really see the blind spots, especially because I know the perspective, even parents, right? Often teachers don't have, um, you know, even the p teachers who are parents don't talk to other parents. So I feel like they're lacking that perspective. But I feel like myself, you know, like talking to your parents or, you know, I, which is quite limited, but other, other parents, you know, that generally that has given me a lot more perspective in regards to what parents are thinking, what basically these various stakeholders are thinking. Whereas I think in a standard international school, 
the teachers are just teachers, right? They don't have the view of what students have. They don't have the view of what parents have. Um, so I feel like, um, yeah, I feel like that, that would be my biggest influence of ASIJ is that it's given me that perspective. And I try to leverage that, leverage that perspective in my teaching and try to make my teaching better, you know, at least, at least not, not bad, I guess is my goal. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. No, I would so, like to follow up with some other questions, oh, but, <laughs> but, but I will, I will, uh, I will stand stand down on this one so please continue <laughs> lovely so so um you know we've talked a bit about your work we've talked a bit about you the man and um yeah. you know tokyo alumni so asij stuff and i want to wrap it up with you know what is coming up in your life i know covid is around so this question's been very loaded for a lot of people but you know even with covid in mind you know what do you see yourself doing a year from now 10 years from now that's a great question. Um, and I, I guess, yeah, I've, I've tried to take some time in this past uh, six months since COVID began to think about that in a bit more detail. I think, to be honest, I mean, in the next year, I, I'll continue to work on my MISA and we, we're hoping to, to expand more and more as, as, the, um, you know, as the COVID crisis continues. Um, in terms of five, 10 years time, that's a great question. I think where I see myself is potentially working in education at some point. I mean, I, n I never thought that I would be interested in education, but the more I work with uh, young people, whether it's university students or high schools or whatever, uh, the more I see that that is a really fulfilling and really exciting opportunity. So uh, don't you know, quote me on this, but I may consider maybe working in education in some way going forward. But to be honest, uh, I think, the most likely outcome will be that um, I'll continue doing kind of social entrepreneurship, you know, running a business, whatever it is. Um, I think once you're kind of living this kind of job, once you have this kind of setup, it's really hard to go back to anything else. So I mm -hmm. think I'm completely a unmanageable and b probably unhirable at this point because I've been doing so many <laughs> weird things. So I think I have no other choice than just to continue doing this kind of weird, crazy stuff and, you know, surviving. <laughs> So surviving and doing weird, crazy stuff. That sounds like a good... <laughs> yeah. That's my motto, yeah. <laughs> and, and you said don't quote me on it, but sorry, I guess I did quote you on it a little bit there. You did. <laughs> you did. Damn it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that pretty much concludes episode 45. Um, thank you for being on this podcast, and um, we'll see you around, Robin. Um, and my Mizu. Check out the link in the YouTube thingy. They have cool bottles and stuff. And um, please continue to save the world, Robin. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. I'm a massive fan of your work. And uh, I'm looking forward to the episodes coming up. Thanks so much for having me. No.